Hi there, welcome to Chinwag with me, Mike Laverick. Um, this week's Chinwag is with somebody I've uh, had uh, known for a while actually, both through the London uh, uh, user group for, for VMware, though I think it's been a while since I'll pass across. And he's a former Chinwagger uh, when I was with RTFM Education, which. Uh, must be going back now, I think, uh, since we had those. Anyway, the name is Stu Radnich, and you're about to hear his dulcet tones if you're listening on audio, and you can see his uh, shining visage uh, in front of you. But before we start, I need to make a little bit of disclaimer. Stu Radnich, you are on the chinwag. Please do not swear. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, tell us, tell us uh, all about you and uh, what your background, what you've been up to in the last couple of years. Well, swearing, primarily. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, I guess I, I, I work um, for, for a large investment bank. Boo! Oh, everyone hated on the banks. <laughs> uh, but I'm not a banker, obviously. Um, but I guess the past few years have spent everything from cloud um, infrastructure services, APIs, uh, big data, emerging kind of tech. It's uh, pretty much what I do. And that's been a focus for a while, the emerging technologies. You were, we were saying offline you've been focused on what some people might say bleeding edge or cutting edge technologies. I guess part of that process is looking at the technologies and saying, can we use this? Is it viable? Is it ready for production? Is that is that the sort of questions you're asking yourself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's it's not emerging in terms of the technology space. It's it's emergent in terms of the enterprise. Um, so it's really you know if you if you take that old eighty twenty kind of split, um, I'm more focused on things that might be applicable to twenty percent or you know niche kind of areas of of the business um, as opposed to the the more common kind of stuff. Okay. Now, um, the first question we've got is really actually more about you and what you've been up to, which. Um... I noticed that you changed your Twitter ID uh, recently and your blog URL changed. Um, and I jokingly said in an email, what's happened? Have you sold out to Tech Target? What's the story? Um, but try and give us a bit of the backstory on, on why that, because you might have lost a number of uh, subscribers and a number of visits to their previous name because they weren't aware of the, the change. So tell us all about why that happened and you know, name check the new uh, Twitter ID and the new blog ID because I, I need to drive <laughs> need to drive traffic to people who are on the chinwag. <laughs> okay, cheers. So yeah, it, it is just Stu Radnidge, um on Twitter or StuRadnidge dot com. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I felt I was I was getting to a point where the name Vinternals was you know very specific um, and focused on virtualization, but I was starting to. Um, sort of move into these other areas or, you know, if you have a look at the last, I don't know, maybe 10 posts that I did on internals.com, um, they were a lot more fluffy than, than how it started out. And I'd always tried to sort of delineate um, Vinternals, the blogger from Stu Radnich, the person. Um, part of that was just to play it safe in terms of you know, my employer and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I was chatting to one of my friends who, who works in advertising and, and he's a big advocate of the whole real name kind of thing. And yeah, obviously branding, they call it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, I, I get the whole thing of internals as a brand, obviously. Um, but I kind of thought, yeah, may, maybe it is time for me to just start blogging under my, under my real name. Um, and yeah, so there you go. And were you uh, at Vinternals uh, on Twitter as well? So you needed to yeah. change both IDs. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, well, fair enough. I mean, uh, it's hardly for me to criticise or you know talk about other people's branding. You know, given I'm such a massive self promoter of me all the time. <laughs> uh, 
And my joke was, uh, I've, I've got a new domain name which replaces RTFM, which is MikeLaverick.com. And I was like, thank God there wasn't another MikeLaverick.com. You know, it took me yeah. ages to think of that snappy name, you know, uh, for my blog. You know, <laughs> So I think I actually... I like stopped... your tagline as well. What's, I forgot what Laverick I... by name, Maverick by nature. Yeah, yeah. It took yeah. me a while to think of, of, of a good one for that. I tell you where that comes from is, is very often when I say my name on the phone to a call centre, they can never... Um, hear it properly i get lab brick and things like that because it lav brick you know so i say it's laverick it sounds like maverick but it begins with an l and then they normally get it when they're okay. you know typing it in but i thought well it kind of describes me a little bit as well okay well let's get into the meat and potatoes now we've done our kind of intros and backstories and everything like that i was looking on your new blog uh, just the other day and i, I noticed you wrote a long post about the software defined data center and it was quite long uh, I didn't get to the end of it because uh, with my attention span, you know, once it goes, I mean, I write really long blog, blog posts, but I don't read other people's, you know, I haven't got the time <laughs> for that. So, um, but I get the feeling that this software defined data center thing seems to res resonate more with certain people than it's, um, you know, strange bed floor, the, the cloud. Um, and of course, well, I mean, at some stage, everybody's going to jump on the bandwagon with this particular term and then everybody being delivering the software defined data center. and. I guess we all have to find some other word before it becomes used by other people or abused by other people. But, um, you know, perhaps if you can explain the blog post, then <laughs> maybe I, I will go back and read the end to it. But what were you trying to get at about this, about this thing, the software defined data center? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a long blog post. It was difficult to write as well. And, and the problem with it was that, um, I was I was trying to start off with a scenario mm. that that you would have today a fairly common one um, that would be you know largely manual or you know not done in a in a software defined kind of way um, and then elaborate on that to say well actually you, you could do this um, in in a much better way and and this might be how you would do it um, and sort of illustrated um, that with things that that I consider relevant to, to the term software-defined data center. Um, I, I guess just touching on the, the whole cloud versus software-defined data center, in, in some respects, um, I think historically we've almost done cloud uh, the wrong way around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you sort of look back two, three years ago, whenever people were starting to talk about it and we were talking about um, very user-centric kind of concepts, you know, self-service provisioning and, um, you know, changing processes and internal policies and stuff like that. Um, but then potentially we realized, hey, our underlying infrastructure technologies actually aren't ready um, for all these new kind of concepts around automation. Um, if you, you know, if you think of the way that, that networks are provisioned, if you say, uh, you know, you need to allocate a new IP address and you need to provision a physical port on a, on a switch um, with a particular VLAN, um, something like that is, is not something that is really easily done mm. um, today. And so, yeah, in, in some respects, it almost feels like software-defined data center is really where we should have started to say, okay, let's get all the underlying supporting infrastructure technologies into a state where... They all are all fronted by APIs. Um, you know, automation is, is just, um, you know, very pervasive. And then we can start looking at, um, 
or the user facing stuff, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I was trying, I mean, the analogy I've often used for cloud, and I think I might have said this at last year's uh, UK VMUG and, and other places, is like it's a trip to the moon. You know, it, it's a, a very large scale project, which is not going to be delivered Tuesday of next week by clicking next, 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 and you know, there you've got a cloud. Much though there are many cloud automation vendors who will tell you that, that you know, you, we can get you a cloud set up by Tuesday of next week. I think most of us go, well, actually it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I'm wondering if maybe we were getting ahead of ourselves that, you know, if the cloud was the journey to the moon, we were trying to get there on, you know, a jet plane and what we actually have to do is build a rocket ship. We, yeah. the, the actual technologies that would get us there weren't in the right fit state. I'm trying to use, like use an analogy around this sort of, sort of nick your idea and that we have to build we have to build the technologies around that goal which is getting to the moon rather than trying to change trying to get there under the existing kind of architectures and structures that we've got is that actually i'm probably making it more complicated and not articulating as well as no 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 i i think i think that's spot on um you know i i and i've, I've lived through this i mean three years ago um we at the, the company i work for it kicked off a um you know, a pretty big uh, cloud internal cloud project. Um, it, it actually covered internal and external cloud, but um, that that was exactly what we found. We found when we were going through, you know, developing all this automation around how a user can request and and get a VM, mm. but we didn't do anything in terms of the underlying infrastructure, in terms of automating, you know, the scale out of you know ESX hosts, of, of provisioning LANs, of mm. doing any network configuration. We didn't touch any of that. We were just purely focused on it, and um, you know, I, I think probably a good example of that is, um, you know, if you want to automate something like the configuration of a, a backup schedule for for a particular VM, um, whoever's developing that piece of automation needs to be intimately familiar with the, you know, the the backup technology that you're using, um, but also the processes by which um, people decide, you know, oh, we're going to put these backups on that server over there. Mm. And sort of, you know, dig out all these rules, and that's a really, really long process. Mm. Whereas, um, I think in terms of software-defined data center, it's almost like a way of saying, okay, we're going to stick all that stuff, we're going to abstract all that away, um, so that someone developing a high-level automation um, really just calls into an API, and and the rest is magic. Okay. Well, I think that leads us on to the next question quite neatly, which is what the real challenge is in trying to deliver that software-defined data center. Uh, is it technology? Is it people? Is it process? I guess you can always say it's all three. In these chats I've been doing about the frustrations of infrastructure and whether we need to restructure the infrastructure, I was taken by the very first one uh, I did with Craig Waters. He was talking about how they brought in um, a UCS system, essentially something like a vBlock or FlexPod, and how that had changed their mind about how they were going to manage that, that that asset, which surprised me because I was expecting to say that management had come to him and said, we're not happy with IT and you need to change the way you're working and we're all going to like do musical chairs and move around until the people who are doing the right tasks are in the right place and then everything will come out of that. So I was surprised that it come up from a technology rather than it being a man management personnel kind of thing. What's your take on where the biggest challenges are? Are there many challenges across many areas and not one of them is particularly dominant or the key turner, if you like? Um, yeah, I mean, 
to, to be honest, I think the, the biggest challenges, uh, certainly in large enterprises anyway, um, are around just, just the way accounting is, is kind of done and the way IT is sort of run as a, a cost center. Um, and a, a lot of things stem, stem from that, um, you know, right down to a, a, a business line being forced to do a, a sort of, you know, quarterly or yearly budget. Mm. which makes it very difficult for them to fit into a model of pay-as-you-go because mm. they can't budget like that. Um, but I, we won't talk about that. I Just focusing on the, on the technology and, and, you know, again, I think that really that is the, the thing that I find most interesting about. Because you're a technology time. person. I yeah, guess. yeah. You like that. Well, <laughs> no, but um, just in terms of, of the word software-defined data center, I think that is a purely uh, technology-focused um, kind of concept, whereas cloud is is sort of more everything. Mm. Um, it's, funny yeah. that you, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been working on a PowerPoint about software-defined data center. It doesn't use any VMware uh, PowerPoints at all. It's just stuff that I've written. And I, I was kind of remembering what life was like back for me in 2003, 2004, as, a, as an instructor, you had to have kit for the students to do the training course. Occasionally, that kit would be in the same room as you, but occasionally you'd RDP or use Citrix to gain access to servers, storage, and network held somewhere else, sometimes in a different country. And they called that the virtual data center, which I, at the time, I kind of thought, well, I, I guess it's kind of virtual, it's not here. But looking back on it, it was actually a very physical thing. You know, it was physical servers, physical storage, physical networks. If somebody didn't destroy the LUNs that were used in the previous week, you'd come across all these VMDKs that the previous students had used. Yeah, you know, yeah It wasn't yeah. really a virtual data center or even a software-defined data center. We only called it virtual because you didn't have to shout in order to yeah. be heard in the classroom. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is that term has its, um, for me, has its uh, genesis way, way before we'd even be thinking about cloud or any of those things. We were using this term virtual data center and I, I just say in the PowerPoint, who'd have thought that this term that I was using back then would now be the central term in the heart of vCloud director and we're now talking about provider VDCs and organizational VDCs and software defined VDCs. Uh, so the term itself is is starting to mutate and and morph, and for me, become the thing that we called it when it really wasn't, because it was actually a very physical virtual data center. There wasn't really anything virtual about it, apart from the VMs. Everything yeah. else was physical, really. The the VLANs, as you were saying, the servers, the storage, that was all physically designed, and was out of my control. If it wasn't done properly, I was on the blower to say, uh, I've got uh, six hosts. Who can all see LUN twenty two, but one of them can't. Mm. I need this assad and and fix. Otherwise, the vMotion lab is going to go wrong, or the HR lab is going to go wrong, or whatever I was doing. So, um, but I, I mean, maybe I'm talking off off the point. But for you, the software defined data center thing has more cadence for you, more resonance. Yeah, but I mean, just on that point you brought up, that that was really the point I was trying to make in that blog post was that um, it it has always been software. I mean, you you think of the core sort of infrastructure services, DNS, DHCP, NTP, um, you know, certification services, uh, you you name it. Um, yeah, <laughs> routing, everything has always been software. Mm. Um, it's just when when you have a look at the sort of traditional um, apps that you might run. To provide those services, like you know, bind 
uh, obviously Unixy type things. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were not written. I, I don't think that the original authors of those had this kind of massive scale distributed computing in mind because they're, they're quite old, and and the protocols themselves have evolved over time. So if you know if you have a look at that great um, Microsoft thing called Wins. Oh yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, but but a lot of people um, forget that the you know the kind of the reason that was invented was because there was no dynamic DHCP at the time. Mm, that's true. So, but you know there is now. So the the protocols have evolved, I think. But the things that provide and and support those protocols um, have have been fairly static. And I think that's what I'd I'd like to see changing. Was you know people um, providing something like a DNS server, but something that has an API, something that allows, uh, you know, one of the problems that we ran into in um, in the project was that you can't, um, you can't give a DNS alias and say, okay, tell me all the other C names associated with this A record. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can do that um, with the you know, DNS protocol as it is. But that's actually a really useful thing. Um, to know in the context of cloud where someone may not um, be able to choose what host name they get. Yeah. Yeah, But they want to, they want to choose an alias. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe we'll see the emergence of more of those kinds of things. I think what's interesting about that is when I look at the software defined data center, I don't think of those services and you're quite right to pull me up on those. I look at networking and and VLANs and what's the alternative to that? Is it, is it vCloud Direct and network-backed networks or is it VXLAN or any number of other kind of layers that can be put over VLAN? And then I look at software-defined storage and it makes me think of the VSAs that I've used over the last couple of years and you know a more kind of distributed model where direct attached storage is being presented and, you know, is it the end of the sand, yada, yada. And what I think is funny about that is whenever you postulate those those things, People go, oh, well, you know, it's very political that, you know, the, the network teams and the storage teams won't like this. But they're the same people who say to me, well, you know, you know, storage, you're not really buying the tin. What you're really buying is the software that's attached <laughs> to the tin that allows you to present that storage in a way that's useful and meaningful. And they're the very same people who make the, the argument that software is really all about storage. Uh, the same people who go, yeah, software is all about storage, but I must have my big metal box with all the disks in from the same vendor I've always had it from. And I'm like, yeah. well, hang on. If you think it's software, why are you linking the, the controller heads or the intelligence of how that storage is addressed to buying a big metal box with n number of spindles with different sizes? If we're really separating those two, then surely that, that could be from anyone where the intelligence is, is in the appliance. And the other thing I've seen as well, and this goes back way back, I was once... Uh, a dead-end VMworld session, you know, when everybody else has left, it's like five o'clock on a Thursday and everybody's like gone. And I went to a Citrix session, which was about running um, MetaFrame or Presentation Server on, on, on ESX, back when actually the two companies got along okay and they were both, you know, uh, <laughs> premier partners across that relationship has, you know, degraded somewhat since then. And I cornered a relatively senior person, I wish I could remember his name now, but at the time it was like, oh, yeah, you're a VP, whatever. And we're like, now I think, oh, well, he was a VP. I should have, should have, you know, worshipped at the foot. 
But I, I raised the point about some of the appliances that Citrus's were making at that point, the Axis Gateway and Netscaler, weren't available as virtual appliances. And I was like, how long will it be before you guys make those virtual appliances? And of course, they are virtual appliances now, thank God. But uh, there seemed to be back then still an idea that when a customer bought uh, an appliance, you needed to be able to go to a rack and point to the thing for anybody to actually see that, oh, that's where we spent our money. So mm. after the conference, I went on to the VMTN forums to the area where I knew a lot of Citrix people hung out like I did, because I'm a former Citrix guy before doing VMware. And I said, if you could buy the virtual appliance of this Citrix product for the same price that you bought it at physical, would you still buy it? Or would you expect it to be cheaper? And without fail, everyone said we'd buy it at the same price. Uh, and that, to me, was very revealing because what they saw was the value in what they were buying wasn't in the tin. But at the time, some of the people I spoke to at Citrix were adamant that what customers thought their asset value was was the tin and the software. And I was like, no, 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 no. If you think customers think that way, you haven't really understood it. What they care about is what the software does for you they're not interested in the tin. So, I mean, I'm getting, I'm going off the point here quite a bit. It, we want this software-defined data center, and even people who espouse how great and wonderful the concept is, still go, I want, I want all my storage, and, I, you know, I want software-defined networking, but I must buy it from this hardware vendor, and it must be in their firmware. Yeah. Because my network yeah. teams would never allow me to put this somewhere else. And I, yeah. You know, even if Cisco create a, uh, a fully-fledged, uh, virtual switch not just a management plane virtual switch which then points down to their hardware you still wouldn't buy it you have to have the pin i mean am i wrong in like um, flagging up this contradiction that i think is there um no i i, I think um i haven't seen so much of um i haven't seen so much of the contradiction but uh, but I, i've seen plenty of people who who are just stuck in that in that old way of thinking mm. and I mean, in networking in particular is is a big one, and it's, that's one of the things I think is is pretty cool, um, you know, about OpenFlow and 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 OpenVSwitch that um, that that really does provide that clear delineation. We we've looked at many many networking vendors mm -hmm. over the years. I mean, you have to, um, you know, in any large scale enterprise, you have to keep an eye on everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but time and time again. Um, other vendors have not been able to compete with Cisco purely because you know the Cisco management interfaces is is what the networking people know, and the Cisco sort of protocol implementations um, are, are what people know are going to be reliable. And we we've we've found you know other vendors have not been so reliable on that kind of front, mm. which is kind of scary. But you know now with with stuff like OpenFlow, you really can say okay. Um, we don't care about hardware as much anymore. I think it's going to give other networking vendors much more of a chance. Um, yeah, I mean, I see it as a real opportunity that a brand new market space is opening up. I don't see software-defined networking or software-defined storage as a threat to those people, but it's actually a huge opportunity for them to do things in a different way, offer customers choices, potentially reach markets where they haven't been before. Because they start yeah. speaking not just to the network team, they start speaking to the VMware people as well. Oh, can we do your networking better? And that's a new... So I see this as a huge opportunity for not just VMware, but for other industry players to say, well, here's a new market 
place that we can not a threat to an existing business model i think that's at the heart of the do we have a virtual appliance or do we have a physical appliance or do we offer both is that the a lot of these companies have a business model that's based on shipping tin with yeah. their software on hold and mm. a lot a generation of people have made very good money out of that business model well here's uh -huh. this other business model that says well you don't really need the tin as, as much and people are like oh well i'm not too sure about that because I've built a career around this and I've, you know, salespeople and all those sorts of people, you know, it's like anything. If you've got a company that used to sell X and you now need to get your salespeople to sell Y, there's always, that's always a bit difficult because A, they need to be re-educated on the new, why they're selling the new thing. But also if they're massively incentivized to sell this and less incentivized to sell that, what's in it for them at the end of the day to promote a different way of doing something. But I mean, that's more the nuts and bolts of how products get sold, which I, to be honest with you, I don't really know that much about it. I like to pretend to do, you know, on a podcast, but I, I, I really don't know actually anything about it. I'll just make that but clear you, to everybody listening in. You probably could draw an analogy between um, the old sort of, you know, big iron proprietary Unix kind of boxes and, and the emergence of x86. And, mm. and you look at companies like Sun that were, you know, historically really focused on, on hardware, also had a completely awesome operating system in Solaris. But mm. um, there was kind of, you know the two were inextricably linked, and and then when when Solaris x86 came out, and they you know they tried to plan that space, it, it didn't really work out yeah. so well. Wipes a tear from your eye, there you see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's move it on. Um, let's let's have like a kind of worst case scenario. Let's say the software defined data center or cloud just doesn't happen. Um, for whatever reason, too many. Wait, can, can we can we just be specific? Which one? I, I say them as two different things. So. All right, okay. Let's say the software de de defined data center doesn't happen. Okay, I'll pick one. Um, for whatever reason, too much politics. The technology doesn't stack up. Whatever. Can we just carry on with the way we're doing things now, or uh, if we don't make a, some kind of meaningful switch over the next couple of years? Are we uh, on a dead end road to, you know, a bad place, a dark place? You know, it, what will happen if we don't take on this new way of thinking? Ah, oh, gee, I think. Uh, hang Is on. that not an option? I'm, I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to put on my thinking glasses for that one. Oh no, not thinking glasses. Uh, <laughs> 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 um. Yeah, I. Um. Can we carry on with the existing state of play? Maybe is a shorter question. No, there, there was this. Uh, there was this. You know, TED talks. Yeah. You ever seen? That? Yeah, yeah. They're very there was good, this by one, the way. Yeah, there was there was this one by a guy called Jeffrey Rush, which was um, titled something like the surprising mathematics of um, cities and and nature or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, go go and look that up. It's 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 really um, really an interesting talk. It, it, in in a nutshell, it's talking about how um, if you have a look at nature and if you map things like the amount of energy, uh, the relationship between the amount of energy that an animal needs to consume and the mass of that animal, mm. um, then you do the same thing with cities. If you take something like the number of petrol stations um, that a city requires in order to you know keep the cars going is an indicator of how much energy a city needs to consume to survive mm. you know the, the relationship is is almost linear it's very 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 similar to nature um, right. but one of, one of the things he ends up with um, 
is talking about this whole idea of growth and that when you look throughout human history, um, if you have a look at the, the sort of life cycle of nature, you know, there's, it's, it's like a bell curve. Oh, no, it's not like a bell curve, actually. It's a little bit more exponential. You sort of get this, you know, this sort of rapid growth at the start and then you sort of reach, reach you know, it starts more slowly, going on an upward slope, hits a pinnacle, and then bang, down you go um, and you're dead. Um, and the only uh, way to sort an of... An extinction event then, or some description. <laughs> kind of. Um, but the only way to sort of break out from that is to have a massive period of disruption um, mm. where you get innovation. And in human history, that's been things like the Industrial Revolution um, or, you know, the, the Renaissance and all these periods throughout human history. <clears throat> and you can, you can kind of apply the same... Um, sort of reasoning to or thought process to companies i think and industries and i think yeah i it if if we do just maintain the status quo it's a long way to get to this point um mm. we we are certainly going to be on an inevitable decline you, you'll just see you know people will just body shop things out to the to the cheapest possible locations um we'll, we'll all be out of jobs and yeah it's 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 not going to get depressed now actually <laughs> <laughs> no but this this should be the the sort of reason to to spur us on to think about okay we, we need to actually innovate a bit more we need to change the way we do things because if if we don't do that then then we're almost certainly um yeah i mean maybe there's another way of looking at it rather than like if we don't if we're if we don't change we're all had to be uh with the dinosaurs is it seems to me that the business that i'm in uh, and I mean the business of IT, bits, business of technologies, is one of the most innovative, rapidly changing industries on the planet. So um, it's not like we've like sort of we're a profession of doctors or lawyers where the law hasn't changed in 30, 40 years, and you still or an academic who's still teaching the same courses that he put together when he was 25. He's teaching them at retirement. So it doesn't strike me that there were naturally the kind of industry that would just sit back and put up with the status quo. Um, but there's this change which is driven by uh, we've got some new toys that we need to install and set up them and, and you know you know that kind of change which is very very rapid you know we've got some new toys to play with and this change that's much more of a kind of fundamental almost of a philosophical level which is about do we need to change the way we do things on a on a macro scale and those changes are much harder to implement and involve people not Oh, we found this new toy, and we think we've found a use a niche use case for it. So, I mean, we are used to change, but we're used to change of a certain type. There are other changes that we are less used to, or sometimes less receptive to. And you know, I think maybe that's what you're speaking to. There's certain changes which are harder to make than install a new piece of software or do an upgrade or whatever. Those sorts of changes we kind of lap up on a daily basis. But there are other changes which I think perhaps were perhaps less uh, receptive to. Is that a way of sort of delimiting the, the two, if you like? Yeah, it's, um, I think it does ultimately just come back to human nature. Um, we, you know, we've built out these big internal IT organisations over you know, the past X many years. Mm. Um, and now all of a sudden we're saying, okay, well, um, we need to get a lot leaner on that front and, hey, this, this is a way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of threat that, that people 
probably feel Perceive in relation that. to that. I wonder whether our industry is not unlike the airline industry. Because um, if you imagine early aviation, you know, people just used to like strap things to themselves and just chuck themselves off hills and hope they didn't die. And then the, the, the Wright brothers came along and showed power flights. But it was some time before powered flight that was used by the military or powered flight that was used for niche cases became mass aviation for everyone. And not just mass aviation for an elite bunch of people who happen to have deep pockets, you know. And then it was some years yet again before that mass aviation became something that anybody could do without fear of dying. So that's an industry that was relatively new. Ours is even newer, really, if you think about it. And I, w I often compare the two because I, I want to know, well, where are we on that, on that process? You know, like if I was an airline now and I buy a plane, it's not like I get a bunch of parts from Boeing or a bunch of parts from Airbus and I have to sort of assemble them myself together and do six months of quality assurance on the airplane. That's, that's what the, I, buy, I get those guys to do. My job is when the plane comes is to decide I'm going to partition it. You know, how many first class seats am I going to have? Am I going to have people crammed in together like their cattle or am I going to give them an extra five inches worth of leg room for an extra hundred bucks? But I think we're a bit far off that process where the plane is just a commodity that we can... I mean, I guess the people listening in from VCE or the people listening in from the flex pods or the V starts will say, well, that's, that's what, our, that's what we're about to, but that's actually quite a relatively new innovation, you know, and there are some people who look at that and go, Oh, you know, I'm buying it all from Boeing and buying it all from, isn't there a lot of risk putting all my eggs in that one, one basket, you know, but it's something that the aviation industry does all the time. You know, an airline commits to a particular make and model of an airline for 20 or 30 years. Cause that's how big the contracts are or even yeah. beyond. You know, they don't, um, for want of a better word, dick around with, well, this year we're going to have Boeing and next year we'll have Airbus and the year after, because they're cheaper and they're offering us more horsepower and better fuel efficiently. The commitment is more, is a different one, but I wonder whether our industry is some way off that level of maturity. We look, we feel like we're ever so mature and, and technology rich, but in 20 years time, will my children look back on what we did as like, Gee, granddad, you really flew by the seat of your pants on a daily basis in your environments, didn't you? And like, well, we didn't feel that at the time, but, well, actually, probably we did. Do you, you see what I'm getting at with that analogy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, we might have actually talked about this um, last time uh, I was on the chinwag, but... It's years ago now, so you can repeat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, IT is is very immature when when you compare it to other um, industries that have reliability, like um, you know, like the airline industry, or even uh, you know, building bridges and uh, you know, um, construction but things humans have been doing for you know hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah, and 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 we're relatively young. And um, I I do kind of agree with that though. We, I, I, I see, I see this all the time, and, and by no means alone. Um, this, this whole thing about you know having dual vendor strategies and having to switch every every few years, and um, I, I kind of agree. Like I, I don't think it's bad at all to commit to a single vendor for an extended period of time. Um, I think there's there's more of a chance you're going to be able to to deliver um, a lot more 
by doing that rather than always chasing your tail to yeah. yeah. I mean, if, before we move on to another question, I think the problem with my analogy is like with all analogies, the airline industry isn't our industry and you can't compare them because they're quite different from each other. I mean, like airline industry is now quite heavily regulated internationally mm. in a way that I know we've got standards, but it isn't as regulated as the aviation. And what the aviation industry wants to do is repeat over and over again the same thing. Gather up some passengers, stick them on the plane, get them somewhere else, get them off of the plane as quickly as possible, turn that plane around, send it back with some different passengers. And they do that all the time. Whereas when you look at the way we use IT, the applications we deliver are so different and so flexible and so not implemented in the same way from one business to another. Trying to drive the same level of standardization and the same level of reliability into that process, I think would be really difficult compared to something like the aviation industry, because you fly now in every airport, is the processes are very, very similar, aren't they? The level of standard, you get on a flight, and most people don't pay attention to the in-flight uh, safety thing, because it's the same as the last time, you know, but, you know, when you move from one job to another in IT, it's like, right, I've got to get my head around all the various parts and how it's being implemented. Some of it's the same, but a lot of it is quite different in the way it's done. Yeah, um, but I... I think if you look at it at a at, at the very fundamental level, um, actually we are very similar to the airline industry in that okay. all we're really doing at the end of the day is shifting bits from one location to another. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you if you ever um, there's a company called Joyent who I'm a, a massive fan of. That's no secret. Um, it, I'd encourage you to have a look at any any time you can get hold of um, a talk by their CTO Jason Hoffman. Um, he's he's got. I think really interesting perspectives on on that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's have a look at my. I've got my list of questions on like uh, a text letter open here. Um, <laughs> which one am I going to go for next? Because we've got two left, but I'm I'm not I'm because I've kind of yacked on a little bit. We've both kind of gone off topic a little bit, but yeah, that's what the chin mag's all about. Exactly. Um, um, okay. Uh, I'll go for the last question because I I'm conscious that I don't want to keep you too big because you know you've got a life outside of talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, what's driving the change? And I think I might have raised this question earlier, but I want to try and make it really scalpel-like. What's driving the change or driving people to want to adopt a software-defined data center? Is it management saying you're going to change? Or is it the technology that's forcing us to change? Or is it a combo of both? Does it have to be a combo of both? Um, when you say management, do you mean... I mean, the CTO or CEO or CIO has been on the golf course recently. <laughs> and somebody said, you know, we're implementing this cloud stroke software defined data center. Well, I think it's about the same thing, really. So the other CEO or CEO. And he comes back and he says, you know what? We need to do this too. And so from like a macro level downwards, they're saying, this is what you're, you, you guys are going to do. And we're like, yeah, we're going to react to that. Or is it the technology um, that's changing things? So we're bringing in these commoditized blocks of compute and storage and networking, and we're now trying to consume that in a more efficient way. Is it is it coming from externally, or is it us going, you know what, we could do this more efficiently, or is it a bit of both? Does that, does that make it clearer? Yeah, I, um, I, I think it's ne neither of those two, actually. I think... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I say this kind of not not that all the time, but um, you know, com companies uh, companies don't innovate. Groups, uh, organisations within companies don't innovate. Uh, you know, technology doesn't innovate. People people innovate. Right. Okay. And I 
I think with software-defined data center, um, it almost feels to me like it's more of a grassroots, almost the same way as virtualization came in. Mm. It, you know, it sort of was a bottom-up kind of thing, but it was it was definitely people-led. And I, I think you know, if you if you don't um, have uh, you know, without <laughs> meaning to sound really, really egotistical, but if if you don't have people like me in your organization, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, it does. But I mean, if you don't, if you don't have people that think kind of that um, the way that um, yeah, and it's not just me. There's there's obviously hundreds of not thousands of other people that think very similarly. Mm. Uh, but if you don't employ those kind of people, um, then you know a mandate from the CTO or from a top down. Is, is never going to go anywhere because the people who receive that message aren't really going to know what to what to do or what to make of it. Mm. Um, and similarly, if you just brought it in as a, as a purely technical solution, and again, the, the people, um, the implementers didn't really have the mindset to, okay, how, do, how, do we, how does this thing really fit together? Um, it's, it's also probably going to fail. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Grassroots. I, quite, I quite like the idea of grassroots because that's that's where I got started with with VMware and how I became notable, I guess, in the community. I, I also kind of think that, like you were saying, anything that's sort of imposed from without or from on high, the way management structures change so rapidly nowadays, unless that particular person who endorses this perspective stays in that role, holds on to that and drives it all the time, it might just go off the rails. Whereas yeah. if it's if it's led from within, yes, certain people might move in and out, but there's a team of people doing that who have bought into it, or a community of people who've bought into it. It survives the the restructuring and management changes that sometimes happen. I mean, I've been when I was an employee, you'd often get a manager who'd really latch onto a certain idea, and everybody like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this, and then for one reason or another, they'd be moved to another part of the team. And then suddenly it was like, well, that's no longer on our agenda anymore. And everybody would be like, so why did we make all the effort to get the ducks in the row to make this happen if we're now just going to drop it, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas if it comes from if it comes from down under and upwards, it's technology-focused. It, it knows whether it works or doesn't work. So it's not just marketing speak. It, you know, we've actually tried these bits out. This bit works. This bit isn't mature enough. We'll have to do something else. It's much more pragmatic rather than we have a vision and we're going to, you know, it's like, well, we'll take the bits that are available, we'll put them together and we'll actually build something that is better than version one that we had and we'll look forward to version three. But it, it survives management changes, which I don't know if that's something that you've seen that sometimes uh, very senior management latch onto a particular thing. But then if there's a management restructure, it can sometimes wither on the vine because it gets associated with that particular era of management and that sort of lot. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking of? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you absolutely see that. But it, I think it's more than that. I think you, you do get the same thing um, sort of at the at the ground level as well. And I don't think that's something that is, is recognised too often, that when you get a large churn of people within any organisation, when, when, you know, old people leave and new people come in, um, there's a certain amount of, you know, knowledge of, of the company and, and, and the way things are done. That, yeah, exactly. That goes with um, them when they walk out the door, yeah. Yeah, and so you, you do end up with a lot of people just trying to put in these pure technology sort of solutions without actually thinking about the, the wider impact um, to, you know, on a, not on an organisational level, but, 
you know, how all the different pieces of, of technology in that company um, need to work together. Mm. I think that point about working together is something that I've really latched onto in the last couple of years. Because I remember, I mean, I've been in IT since about 1993 and onwards and had a few breaks in and out. But as an instructor, I used to often go into businesses and, you know, ask them about their implementation. And very often I assumed that the product was new to them because, you know, why do a training course and something you've been using for two years? But believe you me, that happened as well. Been using the product for three years, the company's decided to put us on a training course. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to have fun and games here trying to teach people who've been using it solidly for three years something they don't know. But what nearly would always come out of those sorts of discussions is is the politics of things. Like, for, I'll give you an example. When I was a Citrix guy, they'd had uh, the system set up and running perfectly fine in their environment for more than 12 months. And they'd been sent on this training course after they'd done that. And I'm like, well, is that a really smart move? But I said, well, you know, if everything's ready to go, why, why isn't it accessible by end users? Ah, well, the firewall team won't let us open up the ports to allow them to have access. They've always hated this project. They've never approved of it. They've never liked it. They just don't like the idea of people, of people from home coming through on a remote uh, protocol channel to access some kind of desktop. They just don't want to do it. And I, I said, well, why don't we just stop the course right now? Because it seems to me that the problems you have have got nothing to do with any of the things I'm going to talk to you about for the next four. And it's just a waste of like talk to say, you can do this and you can do that with the product. Your biggest problem is these firewall people. Why don't we look at that and, and try and address that issue? But it, yeah. it, was, it was quite clearly one team of people were not working with another team of people and were using their control and ownership of something, the firewall, in order more or less to scupper a project if you mm. wanted to be as brutal as that you, you could you could say that they had legitimate uh, concerns about security and counting all that but really it was like we've got the ball and it's our ball and we're not going to play with you kind of approach so i i agree with you we have to work more quarter closely and i think one way of doing that is by putting those people together so they yeah, have yeah. to work together which is this a chat i had with craig waters in the first of these series they'd literally put the network guy, the storage guy, and the server guy together in the same cubes or the same area to work on a particular project. And they would discuss things, you know, where, rather than, I don't know how it works in companies, you know, do we lock the storage people in a basement and never let them out? <laughs> do we keep the server people over here? Or do they actually mix as people? Or do they keep apart from each other, you know? so Yeah, there was a, um, there was a really interesting kind of article that was talking about that kind of, of stuff um i might have um either retweeted or, or tweeted a link to it fairly recently mm. um but it was talk it was talking about exactly that and it was um yeah someone someone summarized it um quite succinctly really by by saying that it it was basically suggesting a, a testable hypothesis which was that in innovative companies um you tend to find people doing a little bit of everything Whereas in companies that are more stagnant, um, is where where you get these silos. So you'll you'll get a storage person, and their resources are split across you know five or ten different projects, mm. versus having a single project with one guy who is doing a bit of storage, bit of networking, bit of you know getting a more holistic kind of understanding. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. Um, but certainly... it hasn't always been the fear though that people don't want to be a jack of all trades and we all know what comes after that sentence master of none um that people are a bit i'd rather be a specialist in something and know yeah. it inside and out 
I think sometimes the the jack of all trades is hasn't had the same status within a lot yeah. of organisations because we we bow down at the the altar of superior technical understanding. You know, these people <laughs> walk around like gods, knowing every zero and one going out of an array. Is yeah. that part of the reason? I, that's what I've because I feel a bit of a generalist. I have to be because in my lab environment in my previous work, there was nobody else for me to turn to. So I had yeah. to do it all myself, you know. So yeah, it's not um, it's not so much um, the jack of all trades thing, uh, you know, which 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 I agree um, with that. It's um, the the management um, at the place I work likes to talk about T-shaped people, T-shaped and, and it's more people. of that. Yeah, like like a T. So having oh, okay. a, a deep knowledge of one thing, right. and but a broad knowledge across across things. So you know you can't you can't be just purely a storage person and not have any idea what an API is. <laughs> I'm going to become or, a T-shirt yeah, person. That, that. <laughs> I like it. I, uh, I've never heard this before, and uh, I'm gonna I need to write this down. T-shirt yeah, person. So Sorry to interrupt. Sorry. It's, no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so yeah, it's not. It's not the you know the the ridiculous argument of being a specialist in many things or you know a generalist specialist. I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, but yeah, it, it is this kind of notion of okay, knowing knowing at least the fundamentals of many things and just really being really good in one specific area. Mm. Well, upon that note, I think it's time to wrap up the show. Stu, it's been a pleasure as ever chatting to you. We shouldn't leave it so long between the next uh, recording, but thank you very much for for being the show. It's been a delight and a privilege hearing your thoughts. Uh, Thanks for having me on. You're welcome.